0: returning to the program is author William Poundstone. We chatted some time back about his book, Gaming the Vote, Why Elections Aren't Fair and What We Can Do About It. We wanted to have him back to talk about some of his other books, two of which have received nominations for the Pulitzer Prize. Unfortunately, we've yet to read either of those particular works, which deal with the limits of knowledge. Uh, So in the meantime, we want to discuss some books we know better, Mr. Poundstone's Big Secrets series, which sets out to reveal the truth behind scores of different secrets. Including things like what's a secret formula for Coca Cola, what really goes into spam, whether Walt Disney is indeed cryogenically frozen, and how to spot marked cards, take a Rorschach test, and beat a lie detector. So, returning to our show to talk about some of these big secrets is author William Poundstone. Mr. Poundstone, welcome back to Radio Parallax.
1: Well, good to be with you.
0: Let's start with Coca Cola. I was very entertained in your book to note that you sleuthed out the fact that Coke, despite the disclaimers of the manufacturer, must contain some minuscule amounts of cocaine, for starters. Uh, How did you deduce what goes into this this celebratedly secret formula?
1: The cocaine issue actually was was the subject of a serious study by a guy named uh, Dr. Norman Farnsworth of the University of Illinois. It turns out that they do use coca leaves uh, as one of the secret ingredients in Coca-Cola. This was actually revealed in a famous trial at the early part of the 20th century where Coke's competitors basically figured, you know, since cocaine is now an illegal substance, how can they be selling this, uh, this soft drink that supposedly contains cocaine? And they, they admitted in court that they do use cocaine leaves, uh, or coca leaves rather, but they sort of uh, removed the cocaine from it using a process sort of like the way they remove caffeine from coffee. But this Dr. Farnsworth got thinking, you know, uh, no chemical process is going to remove every last molecule of cocaine in there. So he did a study, and uh, uh, his students were able to to find that it did appear that there was a tiny, tiny trace uh, of cocaine in Coca-Cola even today. Now, I should add, I mean, it's, it's not going to have any effect on you, really. If you get a buzz from it, I'm sure it's the sugar and the caffeine, which they do admit is in there.
0: Yes, indeed, yes.
1: But certainly the biggest secret there um, is the flavoring formula because there's a whole legend around that that, um, that it's so secret that only like two people in the company are allowed to know the complete formula at any one time and they're not allowed to take the same plane together lest uh, it crash and it be lost. <laughs> uh, this sort of struck me as, as kind of odd though because now, I mean, they've got very effective um, chemical analysis techniques to try and find what's in soft drinks. So what I ended up doing was taking a sample uh, of the, the Coca-Cola syrup to a food chemist for analysis, and they were able to find out the ingredients in there and even the proportions. So in the book, I actually give you a recipe if you kind of want to make your, your own uh, you know, Coke in the basement or something. Uh, the, the really secret part of it is a mixture of lemon, orange, and lime oils uh, cassia oil, which is a type of cinnamon, and nutmeg oil, and they mix those together in a certain proportions, and that's really what we call the cola flavor. Now, there is cola nuts in that, but they were basically uh, used just as a source of caffeine, and they have almost nothing to do with the flavor. So it's really that citrus-spice mixture that is uh, the basis of, of the flavor, The big difference between Coke and Pepsi, it turns out, is that there's a little more orange uh, component to the Coke formula and a little more lemon in Pepsi, and Pepsi also has a little more sugar. I
0: want to just note two two, two points about the Coke formula. Since you wrote the book, Coke has gone over to now using 100% high-fructose corn syrup, which really, in my opinion, as a Coke drinker, gives it a very off taste.
1: Yes, it's, it's a very big difference, although you can get the original cane sugar version in Hawaii and some parts of Mexico, uh, so people who are really into that will sometimes send some cases back.
0: And, and, and in rewriting the cocaine, uh, you know, as a medical doctor, I think that had they left this relatively small amounts of cocaine in just from the coca extract, uh, it'd probably be a safer drink than to put caffeine, which is probably a more toxic substance.
1: Uh-huh, quite possibly
0: in a related story, you, you looked at KFC. They, they advertise 11 herbs and spices. Uh, you couldn't find 11 herbs and spices when you looked.
1: No, what I did, I, I took out ads uh, on a college campus near a KFC outlet for someone who worked there. And of course, you know, the people who work there, they're getting the minimum wage. So I easily found someone who was willing to give me an actual <laughs> sample of the packet of coating mix that they get from the corporate headquarters.
0: Uh So
1: then I sent that to a food chemist for analysis. Well, what they told me was that they found just four ingredients in that, and they were flour, salt, black pepper, and monosodium glutamate, uh, which is about what my mother used on fried chicken actually (laughs) back in the 60s, you know. Uh, they, They said that if there had been even a grain or two of basil or nutmeg or something, they would have found that. So all I can figure is that they may have changed the formula since the colonel's time, or else they used such tiny amounts of those spices that it really doesn't make much difference in the flavor.
0: Your your books are, are are very amusing. You had a very funny aside in Big Secrets about how Colonel Sanders himself was rather disgusted at what the company to do his gravy, which was the thing he was perhaps the most, <laughs> most proud of.
1: Yes, he said it tasted like wallpaper paste. <laughs> I mean, it was a bizarre thing. He sold out the company, but they, they kept him on as kind of this corporate spokesperson. And all he ended up doing was going around and saying how they were ruining the <laughs> recipe.
0: <laughs> well, uh, lie detectors are, are in the news quite a bit. You took a look at uh, at lie detectors, and of course, it's alleged some people fail them just because it out of, out of pure nervousness. And uh, you noted the tests are kind of dubious. They're claimed to be 70% accurate. You noted, well, a coin flip's 50% accurate. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what? What? T- tell us about the, the lie detector test and how someone can avoid maybe flubbing one out of nervousness.
1: Yeah, I think the lie detector is an, an, uh, an, an example of a technology where it's been easy to sell it to police departments, but the, the, the technology really isn't there because, I mean... You you really don't want something that's 70% accurate. Uh, If you're using it as a lie detector, you either want it to be darn near 100% accurate, or else, you know, what can you do with it? The way to beat a lie detector, though, there are several techniques. The one that seems to work best is to keep, like, a tack or something sharp in your shoe. (laughs) And... And when you have a lie detector exam, they don't tell you this, but they actually ask some control questions to sort of get your baselines, like, you know, what is your name, uh, what occupation do you have, and so forth. And then they come to the real stuff, like, you know, what happened to that missing money at the bank. Uh, <laughs> what you're supposed to do is that during these control questions that are supposed to be very unstressful, you, you just step down on that tack, and that's going to change, you know, your your physical reactions, which will be measured on that. And they won't be able to get a fair baseline. So then when they ask the really high-stress questions, then you don't step on the tack, <laughs> and uh, it'll look less stressful there. So uh, they won't be able to come to any conclusion.
0: Well, in a somewhat related story uh, item, you talked about the Rorschach test at one point, something that I think people and most people are familiar with, the blots uh, for psychiatry. Uh- um, if someone's given one of those, what what general principles might they want to keep in mind?
1: This is something that I think is, is a very uh, basic thing. You want to give, like, basically common and simple responses. <laughs> uh, part of the way it works is they just assume that if you're totally crazy, you're going to say totally crazy things <laughs> and just go off on tangents. So try to avoid that. <laughs> um, I, I do give, like, the outlines of the actual blots. People don't know. there's There's actually 10 standard blots that they use. And one of them is supposed to judge how you feel about your mother, another about your father, and so forth. So I give you a kind of a cheat sheet if you really want to get a good result on that.
0: <laughs> when I read your book, I was reminded of the very funny section of uh, Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff, where the astronauts were given tests like they were handed a blank sheet of paper, and they thought if they said, well, I see snow or white, that was good. But you shouldn't be talking about eating by being eaten by polar bears or being lost in a blizzard. Same principle.
1: That, that is not so good.
0: <laughs> so uh, you found out how they got a ship inside the bottle. How do they do it?
1: Yeah, it's basically the umbrella principle. They, they build a little ship that collapses like an umbrella, and uh, they have like little threads attached to it. So they, in, in the collapsed form, it fits easily into the mouth of the bottle, and then by pulling the threads, they can basically expand it again like an umbrella inside the bottle. Then they've got a little tool that cuts off those threads so you don't have any telltale evidence of how they did it.
0: Ha. Huh. You uh, you had some bad news, too, for anyone who thinks Uri Geller is a real psychic. Uh, why, <laughs> why should we be skeptical of his claims?
1: Basically, he's just a, a talented ma- uh, magician who for some reason decided that he'd get more publicity if he said he was really doing all this stuff. And, of course, the things he do, like bending spoons, I mean... They're very simple things that wouldn't get any attention if he was doing it just as a stage magician, but that's basically why he makes these these claims.
0: Yeah, I was uh, I was again very amused. Your books are very funny. You had an anecdote about how Geller is having lunch with uh, with Edgar, uh, Mitchell, I guess the uh, the the uh, the astronaut, and he materializes Mitchell's tie tack.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: And you figured he must have gone and found it out of his car or something.
1: Yeah. uh, In fact, cars are are very important for any type of stage mentalist, Um, like the amazing Kreskin, people like that. What they do, basically, is that before the show, they go out and look in the parking lot. And if they see, like, uh, a car from Maryland with a bunch of kids' toys in the back and, you know, um, uh, such-and-such a book, they can basically come up with a lot of information that they can use. And that's basically how they do it. One guy told me that he was uh, at a show of, of Cres- that Creston did during a night where there was a very heavy storm. And when Creston finally did show up, uh, he was dripping wet because he'd been out in the parking lot trying to get material he could use.
0: <laughs> <laughs> the books are Big Secrets, Bigger Secrets, and Biggest Secrets, all by our guest today, author William Poundstone. We talked on this show some years ago about an analysis you did of spam and some other processed meats, and I think in, in doing so we turned some people into vegans. <laughs> can, you, can, you, can you talk about how meat processors use progressively less appetizing ingredients descending from spam down to things like potted meat food product?
1: Yeah, uh, I guess it's the principle waste not, want not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, all the good meats they sell, you know, for the supermarkets or restaurants or whatever, and then they have to figure out what to do with, like, the lungs and salivary glands and all that stuff. Uh, Now, some of it goes into pet food, but they use a lot of it uh, in in various types of luncheon meats, basically. Uh, Spam is basically pork shoulder, which is kind of tough and was hard to market otherwise. Uh, But the inventor found that if you... uh, that if you basically pasteurize it in the can, so you kill all the bacteria, uh, you've got this product with an open-ended shelf life. Uh, so they they've sold tons of stuff of that. Uh, I mean, and some people actually like it, uh, which I've never really figured.
0: <laughs> I know it's big in Hawaii, of all places.
1: Yes, uh, very big in the Pacific Islands generally. Uh, I guess they they didn't have much access to you know uh, 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 fresher meats there for many years, and now. know, people have gotten used to it.
0: Yeah. I'm guessing you don't consume much potted meat food product.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I try to avoid uh, that sort of thing. In fact, I've got like a a nice little chart in the book uh, which shows you like where the various cuts of pork, like pork snouts, cheeks, uh, livers, uh, skeletal meat uh, are used in various products. Uh, The the one I I determined is probably the most disgusting is chorizo. Uh, the sort of uh, Mexican sausage. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it, they use lymph nodes, uh, hearts, uh, salivary glands. Uh, it, it's you know it's it's pretty much like the complete pig in there.
0: You you also revealed that I guess years ago there were these mass mailings of people purporting to send out Mrs. Fields cookie recipes that those uh, those were fakes and that you actually provide a better approximation in the book.
1: Yes, exactly. It's almost an urban legend. Um, you would get these uh, mailings, in fact, sometimes you get them on the Internet, uh, where someone says that, uh, that they called Mrs. Fields and asked for the recipe because they were going to use it for some nice charitable cause. Uh, and they sent her the recipe, but they also charged her Visa card some outrageous price, like $500. So the woman supposedly was so outraged at that that she copied the recipe and mailed it to everyone on her Christmas card list, and then it becomes a chain letter, and you get this recipe. Uh, if you actually make the, the cookies on the recipe, they actually taste pretty bad <laughs> and certainly are not the actual Mrs. Fields recipe. Uh, but again, I, I talked to some, uh, some experts, and they were able to give me something that's very close to the Mrs. Fields recipe. I mean, obviously, it's not rocket science. It's just a matter of using the right proportion of basically brown sugar Uh, vanilla extract and and walnuts and chocolate chips.
0: Well, Mr. Poundstone, have there been some mysteries that you tried to penetrate and could not satisfactorily get to the bottom of?
1: Yeah, I would say um, the the formula that the IRS uses in order to decide whether to audit your returns, (laughs) uh, there is actually a guy I spoke to who managed to get under the Freedom of Information Act uh, computer tapes of what the IRS used uh, in order to generate this formula. Uh, but he wasn't able to, to really get the actual formula from that. But I figured, you know, even if I did reveal it, uh, first of all, they'd immediately change it, and second, I'm sure I could be expecting an audit. So maybe it's best I didn't.
0: <laughs> what, uh, just final questions here, what, what was the most startling thing you uncovered in your researchers, researchers and uh, what was the most fun to investigate?
1: Um, I had a lot of fun, I think, with um, uh, David Copperfield's way back in, I guess it was the 80s, uh, where he supposedly made the Statue of Liberty disappear. Yes. Now, I've always regarded David Copperfield as uniquely annoying, even <laughs> among magicians, which is saying a lot. Uh, so it was kind of interesting to get into that. Uh, if you saw it on TV, uh, he had this, wrote, this platform constructed on Liberty Island where they had a cross-section of America looking at the Statue of Liberty through a proscenium arch. And they closed the curtain, and then it took a really long time, like about ten minutes, for the statue to supposedly disappear. Uh, They even cut away to a commercial and came back. But when they did open the curtain, the statue was gone, and they interviewed all these people in the audience. There was even a priest who said he he swore he had no idea how this was done. Uh, Well, I figured the way to find out is to go to Liberty Island and see the National Park Service people there who must have watched him build that platform. And they told me exactly how it was done. <laughs> uh, the platform was actually rotating uh, at about the speed of like the minute hand on a watch. Uh, so during that 10-second period, uh, your, your frame of reference actually shifted. And when they opened the, the curtains again, you were looking to the side of the statue. And you couldn't really tell this because you're out on an island in, in New York Harbor. There's not really other points of reference. Uh, so it basically shows you what you can do when you've got you know you know one of these obscenely large production budgets.
0: <laughs> and and, uh, and what was the most startling thing? Is there something that really jumps out at you that really blew your mind?
1: Uh, I don't know. The, the, certainly, the, the salivary glands in, in the chorizo is <laughs> something that uh, has affected me even to this day.
0: Well, I'm sorry to say we've not read all of your books, though we love all the titles. Uh, one title that jumped out, probably next on my list. The ultimate, the great armchair debates settled once and for all. Uh, Can you give us a couple of those debates that you feel you settled once and for all?
1: Um, Yeah, a lot of things like what is actually the world's tallest building, uh, which which is very tough because, uh, you know, are you talking a building that stands up on its own, or are you talking something that can be supported, sort of like a radio tower? Uh, At that point, it's since been uh, surpassed, there was actually a radio tower in Poland that qualified as the tallest building in the world. So that's quite, uh, quite interesting.
0: Wow. Author William Poundstone's twice been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize for his writing on the limits of scientific knowledge. We've been talking about his books Big Secrets and the sequels Bigger Secrets and Biggest Secrets. I want to thank you very much for speaking with us, sir, and hope that, hope that you'll again return to the program.
1: Well, thank you. I'd love to.
0: interesting stuff. If you want to learn more, you can always check out Mr. Poundstone's books. They make some pretty fascinating reading. Let's take a short break. When we come back, you'll be able to learn more about textbooks, which a lot of you have a vested interest in. Stick around.